Okay, we'll go ahead and get started, and then if people come in late, that's fine. Okay, so um, I first just wanted to um, start by saying uh, that this project was like something that we just couldn't not do, because if you listen to the show, it's just something that you end up talking about. Like, it's been really encouraging to meet people, like, after the fact, and you know, they've asked, like, okay, so what are you doing for Mockingbird, like, long-term, and I'll bring up this project, and, like, people just go bonkers about this show. It's insane. And they've always, they always, like, think sort of in the same way that I have, like, theologically about particular episodes. And so it's cool because, you know, there's only 12 chapters in this particular book, but, again, there could just be volumes and volumes of these books because they just, they're so profound. Um... Okay, so the first, um, or I guess the most downloaded um, story that This American Life has ever done is this one called uh, Mr. Daisy and the Apple Factory. Is anybody like a, a, a listener all the time? Okay. Yeah, 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 right. Um, so it's one of the most um, talked about, it's gotten the most publicity and... Um, and it's also gotten a lot of heat. And the reason is because um, this guy, Mike Daisy, if, if you live in New York, you may have actually gone to see this monologue, um, did this theater monologue where he stood in front of um, you know, groups of people and, and talked about this trip to China where he visited the Apple factory where iPads and iPhones are made. And what he discovered, um, at least to his account, was that um, there were children, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old on the assembly line, that people were losing fingers, um, and that it was like a very, it was a very sensational story, but one that he claimed was true, and, and so people were really affected by this story. Um, Ira Glass went to hear the show um, when it was in New York and found it so profoundly, uh, like, stirring, and that's what the show is all about. Um, that, that he wanted to put it on the show. So he fact-checked, um, found out what he could find out, and um, they aired it, I guess, probably three months ago. Um, and then three weeks ago, uh, the theme of the show was called Retraction, which is basically the same thing as saying, like, repentance. Um, but what they said was... Um, we didn't, we didn't do our fact-checking as well as we should have. It turns out that um, a lot of this stuff um, was fabricated. And so he, does, he spends a lot of time sort of covering his tracks and talking about um, where they went wrong and how sorry he was, um, and then spends a, another portion of the show getting it right, like spending time talking about, okay, this is how it really is in China. This is how it really is in the Apple factory. And... Um, but the most interesting part of the show, that particular episode, is he has a sit-down conversation with Mike Daisy. And he basically asks him one-on-one in, in front of his entire podcasting audience, like, why did you do it? Why did you lie? And um, I'm going to read just a clip of it. We're going to listen to a different clip later. But um, just put yourself in Mike Daisy's shoes, like whenever you've sort of been caught red-handed. And he is caught red-handed. I mean, this is recorded. <laughs> And um, in front of a national audience or international audience. And he's being um, expected to sort of say, I was wrong. And, um, and, and say, you know, like, I didn't tell the truth, I told a lie. 
And it's very hard to do that. So just listen to the conversation. I'm going to read it here. So this is Ira. You're saying that the only way you can get through emotionally to people is to mess around with the facts. But that isn't so. You admit to making up an entire group of characters who didn't exist, who were poisoned, and the only person who was with you said these things didn't happen. And so when it comes to the underage workers and the man with the claw hand, it's like, I don't believe that that happened. This is Mike Daisy. All I can tell you is that I stand by what I told you before, that I stand by those things. Now, it's, been, it's obvious, it's been proven that those things aren't true. He's standing by them. Ira Glass, that those things happened? Mike Daisy, yes. Ira Glass, those specific things. Mike Daisy, and I stand by it as a theatrical work. I stand by how it makes people see and care about the situation that's happening there. I stand by it in the theater. And I regret deeply that it was put into this context on your show. So he's saying, like, I, I feel bad that it was put on a show where we're doing factual journalism. This is, a, this is factual theater. Um, so he's kind of playing around with what truth means. Ira. Are you going to change the way that you label this in the theater so that the audience in the theater knows that this isn't, strictly speaking, a work of truth, but in fact that they're seeing really a work of fiction that has some true elements in it? I don't know that I would say in a theatrical context that it isn't true. I believe that when I perform it in a theatrical context in the theater, that when people hear the story in those terms, that we have different languages for what the truth means. Ira, I understand that you believe that, but I think you're kidding yourself. In the way that normal people who go to see a person talk, people take it as a literal truth. I thought the story was literally true, seeing it in the theater. Brian, the other producer, who's seen other shows of yours, thought all of them were true. I saw your nuclear show. I thought that was completely true. I thought it was true because you were on stage saying, this happened to me. I took you at your word. Mike Daisy. I think you can trust my word in the context of the theater. And how people see it, Ira Glass, I find this to be a really hedgy answer. I think it's okay for somebody in your position to say that this isn't all literally true. Do you know what I mean? I feel like actually it seems like it's just honest labeling. And I feel like that's what's actually called for at this point. It's just honest labeling. You make a nice show. People are moved by it. I was moved by it. And if it were labeled honestly, I think everybody would react differently to it. Mike Daisy, I don't think that label covers the totality of what it is. The label fiction? Yeah, we have different worldviews on some of these things. I agree that truth is really important. I know, Ira, but I feel like I have the normal worldview. The normal worldview is somebody stands on a stage and says, this happened to me. I think it happened to them unless it's clearly labeled, here's a work of fiction. Okay, so that's, that's the exchange. Um, so, obviously, uh, in Mockingbird, we talk a lot about self-justification, and that's obviously happening here where, um, like Aaron was saying last night, we, we, like, we're bad, and we're blind to our badness. But what also happens is sometimes we're bad, we know we're bad, and then we spend a lot of time covering our tracks, even when it's really stupid to do so. Um, so 
that's self-justification, that's happening. But another thing that's really interesting, and, and this really points to why we decided to work on this book, was that um, they have differing opinions on what, what stories can actually reach people. And from the very beginning of that um, conversation, Ira is saying, like, you actually think that you really have to play with the facts in a story to really make it true, um, or to make it affect people emotionally, to, to reach people. And, um, and that's not how Ira sees it at all. That's not how This American Life rolls. Um, the cool thing about This American Life is that there is, um, there's no master narrative. You know, they, they tell their stories, and they take a lot of pride in telling the story as it actually happened, without a spin, without some sort of, like, agenda. And so the cool thing is they believe that if we're actually telling the truth, people want that. People appreciate that, and after hearing the truth, um, like it actually hits home a little more uh, when we're actually honest with what we're experiencing. Then we then we find that it um, it has meaning, and that if we're not telling the truth but we're acting as though we are, then we're really just fooling ourselves, and we're not affecting people. So um, anyway. This is, this is kind of what This American Life is, is predicated on. For those of you that don't know much about This American Life, um, basically it's a weekly um, radio show that has totally revolutionized radio in, in a lot of senses. Like it's, it's, uh, it's brought people like me back into something that, you know, the generation before us did all the time, but, but we never have really done. And it does that by having these human interest stories. Every week there's a theme. Uh, it could be something really playful like amusement parks and it's stories from people who work at amusement parks. Um, or it could be something really serious like unconditional love. And the idea is there's a theme and then there's various stories or acts that play on that theme. So if there is one on unconditional love, there's like four different stories showing you either where unconditional love has failed, which is possible, and, and then also where unconditional love has just happened, and it's just extremely powerful. Um, but what they take pride in is being completely honest. Now, because they don't take attack, and they have all these different stories, like it, it kind of provides this sense of humor with the show. Um, they're, not, they're not saying, okay, this story in its totality, like, tells everything you need to know about unconditional love. Instead, it's, okay, we've got unconditional love, and here's four different stories spanning the gamut in what we think unconditional love means. And we're going to talk about it honestly. But there's no, you know, sum up at the end of the show. It's just four stories doing what they do. Um, and in this um, playfulness and in this honesty it comes through that no, we're not trying to kid you here. Like, we're not trying to sort of, like, bait and switch you because we know that people don't like to be bait and switched. Uh, here's what he says. He has an interview with Slate. This is what Ira Glass says. We work in a format where we don't need to fit the story into some crazy journalistic news scheme, you know, where one character is going to be the symbolic homeowner to represent all the homeowners, and anything they say that's contrary to the thesis has to get cut. We're almost never in that situation. Usually we hear about something really amazing and we go and sit down with the person and we try to capture it as accurately as we can. When that's your gig, if you're halfway competent, 
people aren't going to get mad because they, they can see that we're just trying to tell it the way they saw it. Okay, so this is something that, you know, we've already talked about in these um, earlier talks, that when, when honesty doesn't happen, um, it, it doesn't sink. Like, and, and it happens a lot in the church, that we have this like, misconception of who we are as people, and the preacher up front uh, plays into that misconception of people. And from there, we end up sort of kidding ourselves, and nothing sinks, like nothing actually hits the heart. Um, and when honesty actually happens, when we're honest with ourselves, uh, we find that like, things actually end up feeling pretty good. Um, there's grace to that. So, also another kind of mockingbird favorite word is this word abreaction. Um, and abreaction is basically when something inside of you is opened up due to um, a movie you see or a conversation you have or a song that you hear. Like there's some sleeping emotion inside of you. And when you, when you hear a song or uh, you watch a movie... And it somehow awakens something inside of you that you didn't even know was there. You just sort of break down. And you emotionally connect through what was exposed to you. Um, And we've all had these moments. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, in the Mike Daisy scheme, he thinks that, okay, I can tell this really sensational story and it's going to affect people. And it did. But it's so shallow when it's not honest. And when it's actually honest, when we're telling honest stories about ourselves and the world around us, that's actually where all these abreactive moments happen. And so this American life is just sort of an abreactive hotbed, if you will. Like you can't not be affected by these stories because they awaken you, your own stories. Um, so um, with that being said, um, this, this American gospel is... Basically taking 12 of these episodes, or 12 acts from particular episodes, um, that tell a particularly honest uh, version of where we are um, as people, and um, and in hearing them just made me think about Jesus and the gospel. And so, um, one thing is Ira's not a Christian, he's not a believer, um, He's actually pretty vocal about his atheism, and, um, and actually I think that's pretty cool that despite the fact that he is that way, he's still, he's still a truth seeker. Like, he wants to know the truth about things, and he wants a, a truthful, honest story. You could see that in the interview, that, like, if someone's playing with the, with the idea of truth, like, I don't want it on my show. So... It's just, it, it, it's amazing to me that there are these things, like, we, we hear these stories, and um, they're so impacting because they're true. And if, as Christians, we believe that, what, that truth is truth, then they have something to say about the gospel as well. Um, so, one of these episodes that um, I wrote about is, is from the, um, the episode called Know When to Fold Them. Like knowing when to fold your cards, when to give up. And this particular story is called um, Gin Rummy. It's, it's an act from this episode, and it's basically about this house in Minnesota that's been called a wet house um, for uh, alcoholics who, who can't recover. They're chronic alcoholics, and they've been through um, 
they've been through the therapies, they've seen like the, um, they've been through AA numerous times, they know it's better than, uh, you know, their sponsors do, and they still just can't get their act together. And it's called a wet house because these guys are able to sleep and continue drinking. So obviously there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of fists up in the air because of that. Like, why aren't we, why aren't we seeking to rehabilitate these people? Um, but, and it, it's really easy to think about this just as an issue that we can talk about afterwards, but rather than thinking about it just in the context of a social issue, think about it as, um, and this is how I sort of frame the chapter, um, in the context of the prodigal son. And if, if this is a house and the prodigal son is returning home, like what does that home look like? And if you're in the story, what does it look like for you? Um, the audio is kind of weird in this room, so just uh, keep your ears perked. Um, we'll play it now.
The staff member would take out a big black marker and tag the bottle with his own last name. She also helped her team to place on the table in her room behind the front desk. There's no box of tea. So, <clears throat> I, the audio sucks, but um, uh, where, what he's doing right now is he's, he's talking to Bill Hockenberger, um, who is basically the warden, uh, or the, um, he runs the house, St. Anthony's house, and uh, what's happening now is he's, he's showing him pictures of his drinking days, so, so he also is a recovering alcoholic, he's one of them, and um, He's just opened up a tin, and in the tin there are uh, photographs of himself. Just uh, his skin is yellowed, and uh, he's just he's been in a fight, and uh, all sort of due to his like his rock bottom, you know. Um, and so what he says is this is this is something that I show um, the residents here just so that they know that I've I've been there too, that I'm, I've been there with them. Um, okay, so so that's Bill Hockenberger. Um, Go ahead and hit play again. Marshall, thanks.
So uh, you just met Nell Hurley, uh, who is also a recovering alcoholic, who also um, works to help uh, alcoholics. And her response is, is written in front of us on this sheet. Um, to the wet house, she says, it seems like total hopelessness and just giving up on people. Like, you're not really worth fighting for. You're not really worth recovery anyway. So bottoms up. But there should be more, more of an attempt to rehabilitate or guide someone into recovery. So basically the idea that, okay, this wet house is giving people a place to stay. I'm all about that. But they're not helping people. Um, And so uh, that's one figure who sort of stands in opposition to what is happening here at the wet house. All right. And I will guide you there personally and see that you make it. You do have people that can recover out of it, that do take in their own programs and we support them 100%. You know, I can't help but not say that the residents here, the clients here, have been treated treatment so many times that they know the programs that are in the conference. I mean, they have the tools of what it takes to to stay sober, but they just can't, they can't do it. I don't want to ever give up hope. I don't want to ever give up hope on this place. I think people think that by letting them drink, you are giving up hope. Well, I'm not certain one of them. If they had a better plan, then I'd be, I shouldn't like to hear it. The biggest argument for what I have about seeing answers is what I heard from the resident in the hall. And it comes down to this. Before he came here, Paul used to sleep under a bridge, even in the winter. And then, who you know down there, you know, they think they do be well. They know people down there, they don't watch your back. Yeah, I used to learn something like that, or at least like last week, or it was 30s or whatever, but I don't know. Well, yeah, the alcohol went to school and threw that, but it was very easy. That's another story. Yeah, I don't like what it is. Why don't you like what it is? Uh, because if you sleep too hard, you end up having your back at school. You know, because you got people right next to you, it's like cold cleaning. And, and you know, some people down there hate the cleanliness. You know, but uh, if you really have this place, you'd be in the streets, you know, it's all a problem. You know, you deal with the police that deal with us, the emergency rooms, uh, you know, courts. You know, and, 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 
you ever think that every day of your Okay, so that's that's someone who lives in St. Anthony's house. Um, uh, the the journalist Mark Sanchez asks him, um, you know, why don't you go to other places? Um, and he says, you know, in other places, like you might get your backpack stolen. Um, you just don't, you can't trust people. Um, and otherwise, I'm just out in the cold. And uh, this place is really great because if we're if we're out in the street, then we're causing problems. But this gives us a place to go to. Mark Sanchez asks him, "Do you do you feel like you'll ever get out? Do you have um, do you have hopes of of getting out?" And he says, "I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I would go." Um, okay. So and then. Keep going. Um, we're almost there. It's only like four more minutes. And I got the sense that people were slowly killing themselves behind the closed doors. During that year when they died in treatment, three other women died. When that happened, he continued to my heart something for services. Everyone called me to him. But some, this is the end of the road for them. So they may die. They're never going to make that choice and connect to say, I'm ready to get out of here. I like drinking more than I did like being here or giving up things that do nothing like that. heard from a guy named Deacon Jim, is what they call him, and he's sort of the, um, I guess, chaplain at the house, and he comes and just talks to the guys, and um, there's like this real acceptance of sadness. The reporter says, like, you can't help but think that people are slowly just killing themselves in, in these rooms. Like, you walk past and you can just hear, like, the TVs softly buzzing, you know, and people have just sort of locked themselves in their own tombs, in a sense. Um, and you can't escape the fact that this is really sad. Um, and so Deacon Jim responds by saying, yeah, it is hard. It is hard. We, we care for them where they are. If they're not ready to move, if they're, uh, if they're ready to move, if they're not ready to move, that's not our call. We can't push them to move. Uh, our call is to love them. Um, 
and the the last segment was this guy um, who wrote Bill Hockenberger uh, because he was like really excited about this recovery that he had experienced, and now he was in a recovery house and and sort of found his way back on the straight and narrow. Um, but then he received a note a month later that said like I need to come back to the house, like I just can't take it anymore. Um, I want to come back to St. Anthony's. And <clears throat> Bill writes him back and says, you know, I I hope you can stay. Know that you can come here if if you need to. And um, and he's I think he said like 17 years he's 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 back and he's been there for a while. Um, so it ends on a very somber note. Um, okay, so coming from someone who personally hasn't struggled with alcoholism and uh, really hasn't seen it that much in in my family, um, why does a story like this affect me so? You know, like, why was I weeping after hearing this the first time? Um, That's something that that happens with a lot of these episodes. I can't relate, literally, to these experiences, but why do they speak to me, you know? Um, Why does the idea of a wet house uh, speak to... Uh, where I am in my life. And um, I think for me, and and I'm not going to talk very long because I want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, What I heard the first time I heard this was this distinction between um, two ways of dealing with messed up people and, um, or bad people, and people that continue to hurt themselves uh, despite the fact that... um, yeah, I mean, it's like the one that Aaron was talking about last night, that we continue to do these things even though we know uh, crabs make us really, really sick. Um, but we just love crabs. Um, what, so that speaks to my, my addicted mind, you know, that I have an addicted mind. Um, and that something is twisted inside of me. But beyond that, uh, there's different ways of responding that, that I've felt in my life um, in, in two different ways from two different people. And one is the sort of Nell Hurley, um, the sort of like rehab fighter who, um, it's like rehabilitation is the goal. We want people to get better. Um, Ethan, like, please stop doing these things that you, that you do that hurt yourself. Um, and there's something that feels a little bit conditional about that, you know, like my, um, my entrance is blocked if I'm not moving towards rehabilitation. Like, the doors are shut on me if rehab isn't happening. Like, if I'm not getting any better, you're out. Um, and it ends up just making you feel um, hopeless rather than hopeful. That, okay, rehabilitation is possible, and you better do it if you want to stay in this relationship, you know. Um, and then there's, like, the Bill Hockenbergers of our lives that... Um, don't still don't want to give up on people, but it's 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 more that like what what predicates um, the entire situation is love. Um, it's it's like it's a world without predicates. You know, like you can walk through that door completely as you are, and if you need a beer or a drink um, or eight drinks or you're feeling really good and really hopeful. Um, it doesn't matter. That's not what, what is sort of the foundation of this. It's that love is there. Um, and so, yes, like I, 
I haven't gone through a recovery program, but I've certainly gone through a recovery program, if you know what I mean. Like, I've, I've, I've gone through all of these projects in my own life to sort of self-better, and I've seen them fall. And how is this not the gates of heaven? <laughs> you know, that, like, as we, as we struggle to sort of recreate ourselves and make ourselves better um, and fall and return back to the house... There's still a warm bed for us, and there's still someone waiting at the desk that wants to be there for us. Um, so, again, that's not to knock, um, I mean, in this story, rehabilitation, but in our own lives, like, getting better. Like, of course we don't want to do the things that we uh, don't want to do. Um, we'd still do them, but... Neither one of these figures is, is trying to knock rehab. You know, Nell Hurley wants people to be rehabilitated just, just as much as Bill does. But it's what predicates that relationship. And if love predicates the relationship, then um, it makes all the difference. And um, I guess another place where I see that is the church. You know, that in a lot of ways we... Um, I'm sure numerous stories could happen in this room where people have have been in a church where it felt like the the gates were closed uh, because of a skeleton in a closet or uh, a lack of belief or a lack of accountability. Um, And um, and then you've also hopefully known known a church that's done it the right way and has um, and has shared the gospel which has which has sort of eschewed predicates um, and and just cleared the way for you to enter uh, in love and mercy. Um, so that's what comes to my mind, but I know like that these stories have the power to conjure up almost anything in, in your lives. So um, I just want to open it up now to any thoughts you guys have or questions um, across the board. So. What'd you say? Yeah. Mm. I hope you have an opportunity, but if it doesn't fail, the conditionality of love, by definition, 
Yeah, whose life is that that doesn't end in victory? You know, like who ends the day feeling like, gosh, I totally owned that day. You know, like, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I totally. Yeah, that's such a great point that, um, like, this American life functions as a um, as a journalism by way of listening. You know, like it, it does such a good job of of just um, like letting letting people tell their stories. And that's why it ends up feeling so real, because you, you, you very rarely hear just, like, a journalist talking for the majority of the time. It's like, I want to know what the people want to say. Yeah. Yeah. This American Life picture of that is um, the, the the title of one of the chapters is Parents in this book and um, how love becomes law and there's it's this story from a mother who is dying of uh, cancer and still wants to be a presence in, in her daughter's life um, as she's no longer going to be there and so she she chooses to sort of be there and her intentions are, are perfectly loving you know there's there's no bad intention there um she just wants to be there for her daughter um but she writes these letters uh for every year of her birthday until she turns 30 
uh, for her to open on her birthday, and then one for her wedding day. And um, her love, these loving letters, um, end up being received as law because um, what she opens is this, like, uh, this almost like this letter from eternity. You know, like it's this letter that um, comes from, like, Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were. Yeah. A lot of a lot of it said like I love you so much, but then a lot of them said like um, I hope that you are thinking about the future and what are you going to be an astronaut or um, you know a, a dancer or are you you know like what colleges are you applying to? Uh, I hope you are marrying a like um, they were a Mormon family like a a solid Mormon man and. It, it killed her uh, to the point that later in her life, um, she, she, like, she didn't even open the last few. Like, and on her wedding day, she was hoping that the letter wouldn't come because uh, she didn't want to be sad on her wedding day, you know? Um, and just, like, what a powerful way of saying that this love, this love so often becomes the law um, and that these expectations kill um, and just how impossible unconditional love is. Like, um, love without condition, my goodness, you know? Uh, and yeah, another story. Uh, there's one called Unconditional Love. There's a This American Life episode called Unconditional Love, and uh, I would really recommend listening to the whole thing. But it's a story, there's a story about um, uh, the adoption of a child, and... Um, who has these, like, insane, insane issues. Um, and it, it, beco- it, goes, it reaches the point where um, they just can't do, do it anymore, and um, they sort of, like, back away from their duties as unconditional lovers. And it's just so real and so dark. But, but like, I mean, it, to me, was a very hopeful picture of, like, okay, I, f- I don't feel alone now because I can't, like, unconditionally love my girlfriend, you know? Um, it's just, it's, we're in this together, you know? And uh, that's a lot of times what this show does. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's this. I mean, 
honesty, humility, and the grace of God. You know, like that. Um, and usually Christians are, are the worst at the job, you know. Um, but to confront something honestly and to go into that dark place, like and we've said it already so many times that that actually provokes like a, a space of hope. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and what I think of this American life as well, in contrast to the moth, is that the moth is a uh, people get up on stage and tell their stories. And there's no moderation, so there's no sort of accountability for truth, and so people tend to ascribe their own meaning to the life situation. Yeah, and one of the things that's so interesting is that when they ascribe that meaning, sometimes you see these glimpses of, like, you're trying to call a bad thing that happened in your life good, mm. so that you don't have to Wow. Bad, yeah. And so you can see sort of the self-justification, the mm-hmm. loneliness, the pain, the moth, I think. Whereas in this American life, they try not to ascribe that meaning, and they try not to, they also try not to let, uh, let uh, part of their BS fly around. So like the, the, the guy with the Apple story, they came back and laid it down on him because they recognized that he was being just self-justifying things. So that's right. Yeah. So that's one of the other things, is the commitment of the, the truth. Mm-hmm. Extends even to the storyteller. Um, the, even the storyteller is not, I guess, uh, innocent or without bias, and they're trying to get past that. Mm-hmm. Without, mm-hmm. Which is what I appreciate about that, as opposed to the moth or some of these other sort of let's get up our own stage and tell our stories and be very flowery about that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Explicit, yeah. Explicit Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And then, do you think there's a danger to us in trying to fit our Christian uh, perception into secular rhetoric? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll answer that second one first, and and I don't know, but um, but I'll I'll say what I think. Um, <clears throat> I think that. Uh, one of the one of the worries that I had in, in even doing this project was okay. So, 
what I love about this American life is that it doesn't hijack the stories themselves into some sort of like, um, you know, as I said earlier, master narrative, you know. Um, there's no agenda at play. They're just telling the truth as it is. And am I doing that by then sort of theologizing these stories and talking about how they, you know, it, this is such a great illustration of, you know, um, the prodigal son story. And it's like, I wasn't trying to tell the prodigal son story. This is just what's happening in the wet house. Um, and throughout the book and throughout this entire project, like that's been something that's sort of been on the core of my mind. It's like, I don't want to be... I don't want to hijack this story because the story as itself um, does such a good job of, of expressing honestly life. And so um, even as a Christian, like I think what helps is, is lately I've just really wanted to get rid of the sort of us versus them mentality that I, I still have. Like that, okay, I'm a Christian and I live in, you know... Um, I live in the world, but I'm, I, sort of, I sort of am different, you know. And I think that's what Aaron's talk did, really affected me, was that, like, the realization that I'm still realizing, that I'm, I'm just a person. Um, and that if I believe something to be true, um, what is true for me as a human is true for a human outside the church. And in, in understanding that, it, the two can sort of intersect, um, so I don't know if that helps at all or if that's totally... Yeah, yeah.
I've been trying to figure out why I kind of kind of reaction against what you were saying, and I think it's because so much for me when I hear the word hope, I it, it's not a gospel hope. It's a hope that I will you know be able to do what the law says. Mm. Um, so I think as important as it is to to not uh, let uh, or to realize when love is being law, the same it's important to realize when when hope is not gospel, hope, hope is hope that you can do what the law says. Um, so hmm. I think I've been yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tommy? Yeah, there's there's a system of justice at play in his interview with Mike Daisy, you know, and um, and I think that is that was sort of in um, in response to, and he's very explicit about how sick he feels about it. Like he he usually like makes a little punny joke at the end, and he's like, "I'm not in the mood for jokes," as he ends the show. Um, and uh, yeah, so. I think part of it was like feeling um, such such a loyalty to his listeners and feeling the responsibility of um, like carrying a truthful message to them that he he wanted to bring this to justice and so um, yeah I mean you really that's it's the law you know like the law is like standing before uh, Mike Daisy and asking him all the right questions and he's self-justifying, you know, stiff-arming what, what he, he does know about himself. Um, and, yeah, that's not what you hear in the, the White House. Yeah.
have this American right, it's beautiful to see the badness of life, but we've got to have the trust and apply it. And your book shouldn't mess with do I mess with the American life. Mm -hmm. This is how we trust Christians in the badness of being
Yeah, I don't think so. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think that, like, um, I, yeah, like Paul said, I, I do what I don't want to do. Like, these things that I keep doing, I know they're not good for me. And in my heart of hearts, like, I don't want to do them. And yes, the law is good in that it exposes in me what I need um, and what I don't have. But at the same time, um, like, exactly what you said, that it doesn't, it doesn't produce the end that it requires. Right? And, um, yeah, Kim. No, I agree, but I, I would see it still for one mm. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. time, but what I love about this time is that, like, lunch will be awesome, because <laughs> you'll just have, like, so many things stirring around in your mind. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll head out. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Father, thank you for This American Life, and thank you for Ira Glass, and thank you for this community where we have the opportunity to um, speak honestly about uh, what we need and um, and can come together and remember uh, what's already been done for us. Um, help us to um, well, just be with us as as we um, as we go to lunch. In your name, Amen.